Welcome into this week's episode of the Storied Podcast. This is a part one of a two-part series. We'll have Alec Underwood and Reuben Fry break down their stories they're shared in Wyoming. They share a story on how coyotes and other hunters might push animals around, but sticking with it and trusting your hunting partner can lead to success. Um, so we'll just start off with Alec. If you want to introduce yourself a little bit about yourself, um, maybe a little bit about your um, professional career and also how you met Ruben and I or Ruben just, but. Yeah, well, um, uh, thanks, uh, Ryan and Ruben, for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's an honor. I think you guys are doing a great job storytelling about hunting. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the Adirondacks of upstate New York and uh, had a childhood that was pretty immersed in um, the outdoors, um, mostly fishing, a little bit of hunting there with my dad, but um mostly fishing with my dad and my, my grandfather. So, um, yeah, great place to grow up. Um, kind of had a passion for the outdoors and as a lot of us, uh, you know, found our way West and, uh, figured out that, uh, you know, the interior West is a great landscape for outdoor activities as well. Um, especially hunting and fishing. Um, you know, I've, I've been, uh, I was lucky enough to go to the University of Montana and, and spend some time there, uh, uh, cutting my teeth on some of the better trout streams of the Western U.S. Um, was lucky on that. And then sort of uh, through school and through, uh, you know, volunteering with the state agencies and being interested in fisheries, um, sort of worked my way into some fisheries jobs before going into conservation advocacy and uh, conservation policy and learning about um, how the, the world of public lands and, and how they're conserved um, for wildlife and habitat, how all that works and a lot of moving parts. And I know we'll probably talk a little bit about that today. So um, volunteering for, you know, fisheries management stuff was always an interest of mine. And I've met a lot of great friends along the way and including Ruben <laughs> and uh, glad to call you a friend and, um, we've had some great adventures, including the one we'll talk about. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's great to, it's great to make friends along the way. And I have countless friends that are now sprinkled throughout the Western U S, um, that I adventure with, uh, all the time. And so I'm, I'm a lucky guy to have good friends who love hunting and fishing. And, um, yeah, that's kind of, kind of my background. What did you originally, uh, go to school for Alec? I got my degree in wildlife biology and at the University of Montana, uh, they actually separated out so that you can choose an aquatic option or a terrestrial option. Um, Being a fish lover and uh, a passion for fly fishing above all else, um, you know, I think that uh, naturally gravitated towards that. Again, met a lot of biologists, a lot of technicians uh, along the way and um, weaseled my way into a lot of projects. Um, and so that was my interest. So yeah, stuck with the aquatic option, but within that and included a lot of, uh, course work on, um, conservation policy and law and, um, kind of how, uh, decisions are made in, uh, the public lands, rich environment that we uh, live in out here. In the U S period, even yeah, Western U S a lot more, but yeah, 
Absolutely. Everywhere. Were you um, growing up in the Adirondacks? Were you a hunter or a fisherman first? Oh, fishing all the way. Yeah. Um, oh. Obviously started uh, with, uh, you know, catching panfish off the dock um, <laughs> as a kid. Uh, you know, got my first fly rod from my dad and my grandpa when um, when I was young. And my grandpa was a huge in- influence. Um, tied flies, uh, taught me how to tie flies when I was young, gave me my first rod and taught me how to cast, as did my dad. And and, uh, you know, I, I owe a lot to my dad, too, just taking me out west. And um, there was a moment on the Madison River when I was about 14. He was working out there um, on a trip and took me with him. And I just remember I was 14 and I said uh, we, we had some great caddis fishing on the Madison. And I said, I'm going to come to school out here. <laughs> and uh, At what age? What age uh, was this? 14, I think. Yeah, yeah, wow. maybe 2000 eight um i don't know I, i'd have to do the math but uh um it was like a defining moment in your life where you figure out you know truly what, what, I want. what you're kind of passionate about so um yeah fishing first hunted with them a little bit in the adirondacks are um very cold environment probably similar to the northern midwest where you, both of you are from and um low deer population um yeah, wow. tough yeah tough woods hunting so we'd go out with my dad a few times but we never really got anything and um yeah so i i really cut my teeth on on elk hunting in the west uh archery elk hunting when i got into it out here so did your uh dad or grandfather or anybody like cook or do any preparation with game or fish and stuff yeah we definitely had friends who would do that and um and then yeah on the on the fish front you know we would we would cook up some smallies now and again and perch and lakers and you know ice fishing i'm sure you guys can um uh, resonate with that um ice fishing was culturally a big thing up in the northeast and it's uh obviously um you know i know you ruben are uh, crazy about ice fishing um (laughs) yeah (laughs) I am there with you. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a cultural thing and, um, you love it, you know, you love freezing your ass off, but, uh, doing it for, you know, a big, a big pike or a nice lake or, or, a or a mess of perch. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so should we, uh, go into our wild game, uh, meals of the week or most recent wild game meals? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, Ruben, well, I mean, you got to start us off. Start it off. We, uh, I yep. had a pretty good one here um, that I'm still eating off of. So I uh, found a, you know, I guess some people have worse freezer fossils than this. This is from 2021. <laughs> Definitely people have worse freezer fossils than two seasons ago. But this is the last meat from uh, Whitetail that I shot in 2021 with my bow. It was a neck roast, about three pounds of meat. Um, and I mean, I love those neck roasts. It became one of my one of my favorite slow cooking, you know, cuts. So I just took that, um, thawed it out, and I uh, just seasoned it with a lot of salt, pepper, and some chili powder. And then I slow cooked it in a crock pot in apple juice with 
sliced yellow onions and some garlic for about 10 hours. And uh, honestly, I think it cooked even better than you would on low for 10 hours because it was between the low and high since I had left it out on my back porch in 95 degree heat in the sun all day. So it was like slightly higher than low, but not high, you know? Um, and then, so I took it out, shredded it, and then uh, just poured a, more than half a jar of some Stubbs uh, honey sweet spicy barbecue sauce in there, mixed it up, and had it on some Hawaiian bread rolls with uh, homemade coleslaw. Hence pretty, pretty good. the Hawaiian uh, shirt you got on. Yeah, honestly, that's a good connection right? there. It's not because I ate the People Hawaiian bread. It's just because I wanted to wear this shirt right now. I mean, Maddie bought mm. me this shirt, and Maddie also had some of that meal I just described. So I guess there's another connection, but uh, I just wanted to wear the shirt. <laughs> All connected. Very wow. Well, just can you uh, describe that shirt a little bit more? For people that oh don't yeah, see so this. I'm wearing a shirt. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend and I went to Maui in uh, early February this past year, and I had said that I wanted to come home with a Hawaiian shirt. And my sister was living there, which is why we visited, and so it was much cheaper for lodging. But um, the whole time we were there, I never saw one that I wanted to spend money on because if you want a really nice one, they're like over a hundred bucks, and the other ones are pretty much what you can buy at Walmart here. Um, and I wanted one with fish on it, but I couldn't find it. So anyways, I came home with no souvenirs except for a little magnet of a nene on my fridge. Um, and then she surprised me by uh, buying a secondhand used one that had the, uh, the state fish, the trigger fish on it. So I got this white background Hawaiian shirt with some like thin coral and these fish. And they're like, you know, painted. They're not like pictures of fish. They're like painted. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's and, a good uh, shirt. Yeah, I like it. Good shirt. Custom. Good yeah. Shirt. Wait one one question though. What's the uh, Hawaiian name for the trigger fish? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna butcher this because I can't remember what the exact vowels or the. You just concept, told the, me this. Una una kuna kuna apu apa something like that. <laughs> I, got the, I got the right syllables. So I don't know about. It. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah, H's yeah. and U's and M's. Good effort. I think I that's it. But. All right, we'll go to into another meal. In that, let's see. I had. I'll go into mine. Alec, you're you're next. Um, I had some Mongolian elk. I've been trying to empty the freezer, and I got a little bit of elk meat still from Wyoming left. And it's pretty much. I had a little piece of flank steak. I cut it into quarter inch pieces, maybe a half inch thick, and um, <clears throat> actually pounded them out put some uh, clear uh, wrap over them, pounded them out, and then put them in a bag full of cornstarch and just let that sit a little bit while I prepared everything else. Um, put them in my cast iron, fried them, seared them um, till they're crisp. The cornstarch is to help crisping up, you know, your, your, your meat. And um, then remove that, added some garlic, onion, and then also some chili flakes that I dehydrated from the garden last year from the chili peppers. Um, added were they those red in. hot? They were red hot chili. <laughs> they were, they're still red hot. If you touch them and you touch your eyes or anything, they're, they're just hot. But um, so did that and then added some uh, soy sauce, water and brown sugar to emulsify that pan, bring all those seasonings back up, and then added the meat back in and serve that. I, I should have served it over rice, but 
Um, potatoes are good in the garden right now, so I pulled those up and mashed those up, and I served them with potatoes. But that was a, a good good little meal there. But okay, nice. Alec. I I gotta say, guys, uh, you know, you two, knowing both of you, are really good at preparing wild game. You've got some creative recipes. Uh, Ruben can attest. I don't get too crazy with it, but uh, you, it's inspiring. Oh, so I, I was actually writing down some of that stuff you said, minus the red hot chili peppers. Uh, we'll we'll I, have. I'll, I'll make. I plan on making a reel on this one on an Instagram page to. Yeah, you know, yeah. To you be with the times, our Instagram page is a little, little, little lax than yeah. just pictures. But apart, apart from the band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I don't do well with spice, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, good reference, Ruben. Um, no, I um, I stay pretty simple with my recipes. And one thing I thought about was the other day was the concept of you know really bringing out the natural wild game flavor, and um, you know not modifying it too much. And obviously, like you were saying, with a with a neck roast, Ruben, like you gotta you gotta do something to loosen up that meat and kind of um, make it really taste good. And um, but with backstrap and stuff, I, I love cooking it simply. Um, salt, pepper, a little bit of Hungarian paprika, and then, um, you know, really pan searing it super hot um, and some butter, um, throwing in some garlic at the end, basting it a little bit. And so my last meal that I did, um, you know, it's, it, it's quick and dirty, but it just singeing it real hot. A, a chunk of backstrap that way is, is, in my opinion, a great way to taste that natural flavor of the meat. Um, and I also love to do the classic uh, sort of roasted um, potatoes and Brussels sprouts um, with yeah. various seasonings. And it's just, it's super simple, but it's quick. And if you want to throw together a quick wild game meal, um, I think that pan sear of a nice steak, a uh, chunk of backstrap, um, that was that was my last one. So. Nice. What, also, what, what animal was that off of? Uh, that was uh, the elk from this last year. Nice. Yep. I, I think, Alec, you actually made that exact dish for Ruben and I. I've when, likely uh, made I it shot for... my bear in 2020. <laughs> I've, I've likely made it for everybody because it's... <laughs> yep. You have also made some salmon, I okay. think. Yeah, yeah. I've got a killer salmon recipe, too. Yeah, happy to share yeah. that. But uh, I also want to suggest, guys, I love the wild game, but um, part of the podcast here every time at least the ones i've listened to from you guys uh is the the beer that you're drinking and so oh, yeah. i wanted to um just for the sake of things uh, <laughs> crack a cold one and um say that uh tonight's beer and this does not sponsor the podcast but it'd be cool if they did um <laughs> is from roadhouse brewing company in jackson hole wyoming and it's called the walrus Hazy IPA. Wow. I, I, identifiable, identifiable by a giant walrus on the can. If you know Nice. Uh, very good. What's the, what's the IBUs in that beer right there you got? Uh, the, Why well, about um, the alcohol content? It says goo goo jagoob <laughs> which means a lot of IBUs. Um, yep. And uh, we're at 8.3%. Ooh, that one will get you tickered up real quick. Once it's a tall boy, but I, I, I think that um, 
get through the podcast fine here. So <laughs> yeah, I got a uh, good old Pacifico. So we're not on the same level with the uh, ABV, but or the or the flavor. Honestly, I got I got a light drinking beer here. You got to look for the walrus. Yeah. What about you, Ron? Ah, <laughs> oh, don't. I got I got the I got the classic Coors Banquet with um uh, my cousin's uh, thirsty in thirty. With a 24-inch largemouth caught out of the <laughs> Century Pond, a golf course pond. That my, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a custom uh, koozie. I guess if we're showing koozies, too, we've got yeah, this one see says it. prevents spoilage. And, <laughs> nice. um, this is from Hellgate Hunters and Anglers, and a shout-out to them. I used to be yeah. on the board of directors there out of Missoula, Montana, and they're a great group that does uh, great conservation work. So My, my koozie's... Is to uh, this is a bachelor bachelor not bachelor party out uh, groomsman gift from Matt and it's a brewmate it's kind of like a yeti koozie so it's actually like a really really nice koozie but I wish I had more flair like you guys have on mine um, it's just <laughs> <Personal> orange <laughs> that is a personal keeps touch it but keeps it colder yeah but I think um, I think let's go into our main story what yeah. we're here about. Um, and talking about you guys, was it, it was a rifle season tag, right? You know, that's why I have the blaze orange brewmate koozie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> setting the stage. This is a rifle stage. story. But, um, what kind of, uh, spoke the, the tags are getting, how did you guys get these permits? You were both living in Montana at the time. Yeah. Um, and why the hunt? Why do you guys go together? Well, I'll just say my side first as i just moved to montana in 2020 um i could not apply for tags as i moved here in march so i wasn't a resident until like september pretty much so i couldn't apply for any you know uh drawings but i could buy my general tags for that season so 2021 was the first time i could apply i applied for the 700 antelope series out in eastern montana that's not giving anything away as far as units go because that's like the southeast quarter of the state pretty much um and that's that tag is generally you know a pretty pretty easy one to draw but it's still a draw and i didn't get it my first year with no preference points second year i had one preference point and i drew a tag and then they also give you the option to get an additional dofon tag if you want for select parts of that 700 series and so i got that as well so i had the buck tag and the dofon tag alec came about getting those tags i think from a different angle not just paying your dues one year and then getting the tag i think you kind of gave up on drawing in another unit right yeah uh that that's somewhat accurate yeah i think um you know something in montana um it it does seem like the draw odds for uh antelope across different units have uh, become a little bit more difficult even for resident hunters and that just might be a, a result of more applications going in and uh, a growing population and so um, yeah it became a little frustrating to a unit that you used to draw more often um, and part of it too might be um, tag allocations from the agency based on sort of their annual counts of uh, does and fawns and um, but you know a lot of that is done later of course than the uh, elk and deer so um yeah it was a conscious decision to kind of say you know want to hunt new area 
Um, I think I had uh, thought about it for a while in, in, in that there's a lot of a lot of open country out there on this tag. And um, it's one of the more common tags in Montana that gives you a lot of options. So um, and there's a higher density population of uh, pronghorn out there. So, um, yeah, that was the decision. But it's fun when you have other friends who draw the tag and a little bit higher draw odds. So worked out. Yeah, for me, I was pretty excited because, like we talked about a few episodes ago, Ryan, we all went to Wyoming on those, um, you know, a bonus tag, those doe tags, which are really cheap. And well, you bought the buck tag, but um, so I had shot that doe in Wyoming, but I had never actually had a buck tag for an antelope in my pocket, and I never shot a buck before. So I was pretty excited about that, and. Um, we're going to an area in southeastern Montana, which uh, Alec and our friend Caleb had actually been before on a turkey hunt that Alec um, didn't have the best time on. He's he's dabbled in turkey hunting. Caleb is definitely way the best turkey killer I know, and I've I've hunted more than Alec, and we took him out there, and I don't know if we really convinced him that uh, it was a bunch <laughs> of fun because we hiked around probably 10 to 14 miles a day, and uh, actually in three days, three of us didn't even shoot a bird. But we were not super far from that region where we were hunting the turkeys, um, which is why I was putting in to go out there because I had this one area kind of in mind. But I think Alec, for some reason, had been out there or knew about the area that we ended up hunting more so and was like, hey, I have that tag. We should go hunt there, and I know some spots. And then our other buddy actually was also going to be out there with his dad, uh, a little overlap. We weren't going together, but we we were going to be in the same area for – you know, a couple days. Um, so we decided to go out there and, uh, I guess we'll just roll right into how we rolled into town because we don't need to talk about driving hours and hours and hours across the state to get there. <laughs> so we rolled in and, um, we had a motel. We had a motel the second night. So we rolled in the n- day before opener to scout. Correct. That is correct. Yep. Get the spot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, why don't we go in just a little bit about how that scouting day went? Do you remember anything that stood out to you on that? I know we did some e-scouting beforehand, or you might have just been doing a lot of e-scouting while I was driving um, on some of that stuff. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in this particular unit, um, uh a lot of hunting pressure, decent amount of pressure, a lot of people who have tags. Um, but as the saying goes with antelope, actually, I don't know if this is a saying, but if you're hunting more than a mile from the road, you're kind of doing it wrong. Or, <laughs> or <laughs> Most people are hunting within a mile of the road, and, um, and that definitely shows. There's lots of people around trying to glass antelope, uh, pronghorn, Jesus, I should really just call them by their actual name. Um, but, uh, cause they are not antelope. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I guess we, we were driving around a lot on these road systems. We had a couple other friends in the area. We were trying to connect with them. And, um, ultimately I think, uh, Ruben and I being pretty gung ho on hiking back in a couple miles on these BLM sections, because you know, you're going to be away from the craziness. Um, decided to, uh, you know, choose this area that had kind of a long string of BLM lands along this ridge line. And um, no one was really parked there. 
And since we were camping out, great way to secure your spot is to camp right where you're going to hike in from. And we had uh, seen some bucks and does kind of in the foothills, um, you know, uh, down from this giant contiguous chunk of BLM lands and um, decided to just hike that ridgeline in on the morning. It was kind of easy access, mile and a half, two miles, you know, um, and that was kind of going to be the play. And uh, yeah, Ruben, is that what is that what you remember about sort of how we scouted around? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's the important details. We did spend a lot of time where I was like, we need to get way away from people, and we went way away from people, and we also went way away from antelope or pronghorn. Um, and Alec is much more experienced in pronghorn hunting than I am. And, uh, and he was like, you know what? We should probably go back the other way. There might be more people, but there's more animals. And so, yeah, we found this spot. And, um, I remember the term that was tossed around a lot was ping ponging. The antelope, or I can stop saying antelope. The pronghorn will be ping ponging around as soon as opening light hits. They'll be going from one spot to get shot at another spot gets shot at. So you want to be away from people in, in the area they're going to ping pong in and out of. Um, so yeah, we ended up, uh, we had a motel for the second night. So we ended up uh, parking the truck um, on the side of the road and sleeping in the, in the bed under the town tunnel cover that night. Wasn't uncomfortable really. I think it got a little chilly, but like what were the highs this weekend we went? It was like 70 degrees were the highs this mid October, which is pretty, yeah. pretty warm. It was a warm one for sure, and um, always something to consider when you're trying to put an animal on the ground. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember how cold it got. Maybe 35 at night, maybe 40. I don't know. Yeah. It dropped dropped decent decently. Yeah. Yep. I just remember it wasn't very difficult to get out of the truck bed in the morning. Sometimes when you're truck camping and you get up and it's like, oh, it's cold out, and you don't want to get out of your sleeping bag. It was. It was like chilly, but it wasn't like that. I like I, I could get up and go and like get in my actual hunting clothes without like, you know, freezing my nuts off. Um, I do. I do think anything. Uh, yeah, twenty five degrees or below is is kind of that cutoff where you really feel it. You know, yeah. Anywhere kind of around freezing, I've always felt is okay. But um, yeah. yeah, you get into those high teens in uh, late rifle season for deer or elk. Um, yeah, you question, do I need to get up this early? But the answer yeah. is always yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. So we got up, and um, uh, Trevor and his dad actually drove past us uh, on the way to their spot. Um, we'd actually put them. Uh, we, we suggested a spot to them where we had seen some antelope right at dusk the night before, um, and so they went down the road to that area, and we were going to do our hike in, and um, we get out there. You know, it's that kind of gray light, like where you kind of need a headlamp to see stuff if you're looking in your backpack. But if you're looking over the landscape, you don't need a headlamp. And you definitely don't want one because animals can see you like with a headlamp on. But, you know, we're getting there. We're probably starting to hike in about half an hour or 20 minutes before legal shooting light, which I think we thought was a little late. But um, we'd also never been to this specific spot. So it's never a bad idea to just try to get in there when you can see a little bit of stuff when you've never seen the landscape. Cause you don't kind of know how to walk around in the dark. Um, and yeah, so that set the stage. It was that kind of like blue gray lights. And then you just see the tiny little bit of fire on the horizon starting to come up. 
and it's kind of we're on like a ridge line i think that goes down and like these are gradual gradual ridges out here like we're in prairie country and it kind of split two different ways with a draw down the middle like if you're looking forward the draw kind of goes like like to your two o'clock way out there and then it comes to a point the ridge does and then it drops into like a little bit deeper cut there so we get to the rim of this area and i think we you know we're glassing as we're walking and i think alec didn't you pick out the first animals yeah yeah i think i did i <clears throat> and of course the the, the rule usually goes whoever <laughs> spots first and yeah in this case i mean yeah, I, I don't know if we mentioned this, but we did both have a buck and a doe tag. Yeah. And so there was that internal debate about, yeah, who gets first pick and um, if there's a follow-up shot. And I think going into this hunt, our uh, dream situation was, you know, doubling up out of one group, which is just hard because on that shot, you know, they're going to scatter a bit and you never know what's going to happen. But point being yeah i think i i spotted those from a ways off and we tried to um start to plan our approach and luckily in this area there is quite a bit of topography to work with um so you can plan out your stock and try and get within you know your effective shooting range and and for me it's never been super far i've never put in significant bench time but my goal is always to be pretty effective out to um you know 250 300 um, and I felt pretty decent about, you know, sort of that effective range. Um, and so, yeah, spotted those and we decided to try and go in, go in on this group antelope. It's quite a big group, but, um, a pretty wide basin. And I think at first Ruben, we were quite a ways off and we kind of closed the distance and got in towards like 450 yards is, is a number that kind of stands out in my head where we couldn't we had this big rounded slope and we couldn't really get any closer. So, yeah. So that, that kind of bull that we were talking about, they were down in this kind of, you know, it's not, it's not really broken country, but it's also not prairie. You know, you got most of the ridges are like contiguous, like solid, you know, grass across it. And maybe the points and edges will have, you know, a bluff face with some cliffs, but like only like 20 to 40 foot cliffs, nothing, nothing massive. And so, um, we, he spotted them, Alex spotted them and they went, they went behind one of these tiny little draw cuts, right. Where they went out of sight. And that first time that they did that, we, we, I think we sprinted about 300 yards <laughs> to cut, to get in there while they couldn't see us. Cause pronghorn have incredible vision and, um, that like their eyes are pretty much all you got to worry about unless you're trying to pretty much archery hunter. I would think you don't want to make much noise if there's no wind, but, I think it was blowing a little bit that morning. I remember it being a little brisk because what happened was we got in big. They, they came out from behind the the breaking vision and went on the ridge. And we were looking at them. And like Alex said, they were at about 450 some yards. And then they went over the next ridge into that bull that was at the end of the long ridge I mentioned earlier. So now we dumped into this little draw and came up. And we're thinking that once we crest on top of this point, we likely could be in shooting range and um, we peek over and the antelope are there, but they're not in shooting range. And we're actually kind of out of lateral moves because we're like now on the rim of this thing and there's not much place to gain ground on them. So 
I think we, we sat there for a while, didn't we? We sat there for quite a while, and I think that that was probably, in retrospect, the smartest play we could have done um, is just to kind of wait and see where they move. And this is all, of course, really hoping that no other hunters hike two miles onto that contiguous uh, BLM chunk. And, um, you know, later we kind of ran into issues on that, but I mean, ultimately um, kind of hedging our bets and saying, we think they're going to naturally move one direction or the other. And we're going to wait them out and just see which direction they go and kind of, again, use that landscape to our advantage. And, um, but it was exciting because we got to sit there and watch them for quite a while. I would say we were almost an hour there. Yep. Yeah. We were just kind of laying there making sure they weren't going to go anywhere crazy. Um, if they headed over the ridge and down towards private, you know, making sure that we had enough room to track them down before they reached private. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so it was really fun because I think some of the funnest times I've ever had is like that, uh, those times where you get to observe the animals kind of doing their natural thing. And it's, it was funny because we are hearing shots, you know, kind of in other parts of the Valley. And then there's this group of, I, I bet it was 20, 25 pronghorn. Don't you think Ruben? And they were just hanging out in this little bowl and doing their natural thing. And that was special to, you know, I've been on pronghorn hunts where you start to glass the landscape right at first light you're hearing shots and they're they are ping-ponging like you said and um so it was it was neat that we found a little chunk of land that um you know was far enough back where they were undisturbed and yeah uh, it was exciting so now the interesting thing about this part was this was like kind of if you will like a bowl or a crater on top of a divide so this is on the edge edge of the ridge and there's two major multiple mile long draws that go either way and we're right on the crux of the divide there's a fence line down it, even though we're on BLM, folks that don't live in the West, um, there's a lot of fence on public land too. That's either left there from when it was acquired or there maybe there's still grazing permits on there. And they have, there's, there's fences you got to cross everywhere, but antelope pronghorn um, don't generally like to move through fences. I mean, so we were kind of thinking that they were going to hit this fence and come uphill towards us. There's also a, a very large bull like, a, a bull, you know, cow, moo cow, like probably a hundred yards from us sitting there, two of them actually. And, um, so that was kind of maybe going to throw a wrench in it. If the, the antelope didn't want to come close to the, the bulls, <laughs> but they would have been in range before we thought they might've gotten spooked by them, but we didn't think they're going to go over that fence. I was glassing that way while we were sitting though. And I actually spotted another buck antelope pronghorn. I got to switch that. You're right, Alec. There's another pronghorn buck about 800 yards from us on the top of this little ridge over that fence, still on public land though. So, you know, put that in your little memory bank, but we're focused on the situation at hand. Um, and then a coyote came in, right? Yeah, that was uh, something we did not expect. So the, the pronghorn are feeding up to us. There's a lead doe that we kept keeping as like the tabs on the front of the herd as it was moving. And all of a sudden I see someone like, what is that? And the coyote came in and I'm like, Alec, this coyote's going to spook these pronghorn. Like this is going to happen pretty quick. 
And it did, but honestly, it didn't spook them really bad. I feel like they might not really care that much about coyotes unless they're actively chasing them down because they know they can outrun them. Um, so they kind of, they definitely like started like fast walking, trotting off, but like they weren't sprinting or anything. Um, so I think at that point was when we had a little bit of cover cause they went down further in the sage and we moved to the other side and you got your rifle up as they're about to go back over that ridge that we saw them disappear over the first time. And, um, they started filtering through, what was that range? That's a really good question. I, I think it was upwards I, of three. Upwards of three. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing was, they, were, they weren't stopping, though. Like, they weren't running, but they were moving, you know. Um, so, so Alec had his gun up and was on him with the scope. He also had an awkward rest because we, like, ran down there and sat down as they were coming up. So I think you were sitting in a sitting position with your knees up, and you had your backpack between your knees and had your rifle on your backpack as a rest. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, think I have a picture it. of yep. it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was it. And, um, yeah, it's interesting because I think in that open country, um, I think I had a bipod on my gun at the time. Did I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you really, you even got a, yep, video of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I took my time. Um, felt pretty comfortable. I've shot off my pack a lot, including, you know, the mule deer buck I shot last year was at 300. Um, perfect, perfect shot. And I felt pretty comfortable shooting off my pack in the past, but, uh, this one felt all right, except for that they were moving. And I, I think, um, you know, a lot was going through my mind about, you know, is this going to be an ethical shot or not? And, uh, are you steady, you know, and you're really like in those crosshairs and you're, and in your breathing, you're trying to go through your breathing. Um, and then the slow squeeze on the trigger. And, um, yeah, I guess I, I felt, I felt pretty comfortable after I really got settled. Um, even though I probably sat my ass in a cactus or something like that. Um, <laughs> Did any no. of, uh, like your nerves or anything like going into it, you're lining up on that pack you're just breathing heavy because everything happened so fast. Did any of that, like your nerves or anything happen? That's why you didn't feel comfortable right away at that shot or? I think I didn't feel comfortable mostly because they were moving. And, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're ranging or your hunting partner is ranging and they're giving you some ranges. And I think you were Ruben, right? You were, you, yeah, yeah you were giving me some ranges. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just one of those moments where you're really trying to analyze, um, is this right like, is this about my effective range and do I feel comfortable mostly? That's mostly it. It's like, do I feel good about making, uh, a good shot on this animal that's going to, you know, and I think I was, um, uh, feeling pretty comfortable in that situation because we had, it was about a minute, I think Ruben, that. I was set up on those and yeah, could go through the breathing and whatnot. And yeah, that buck kind of gave me a, yeah, broadside shot and, um, aimed a little high, but, um, yeah, did that slow squeeze shot goes off. Well, um, no, this was not when you shot though. Oh, what do you mean? This wasn't when I shot. So they, they went over the hill. This oh, you're talking before they went over the yes. little knob. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. sorry about that. Jeez, I'm jumping <laughs> in the story so fast. See, I'm leaving everyone on the press. Rewind. Yeah. 
we're we're very close to where you shoot. But so this was a that you were on those those antelope for those pronghorn for a couple minutes with your gun in that position at about mid three hundreds on yes. your pack, but didn't feel good because they were moving. And then they went over that. We let them pass. You let them pass, and they went over the ridge. And then we immediately got up and sprinted after them. Had to kind of dodge those two bulls that were sitting there. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. those are big bulls too. Those are like 1500 pound animals. Uh, and then we got to the, the next rise that they had dipped back over and set up again. And I, I think, I think were we both, no, you were sitting and I was prone, I think was the deal. Cause we were yeah, trying to do the one, two thing, right. Which never works. Yeah, um, exactly. yep. And I totally, um, yeah, I had forgot about the first ridge that we have to go over so funny how there's multiple uh, all the topography you have to work over to get close to an animal and um mm -hmm. and it's cool when they don't really know you're there so and that was the thing i remember approaching that next little knob and and saying i i think they booked it i think they got spooked by something else and they're way out somewhere because we weren't seeing them and then finally we caught them right you know yeah below so um, yeah i remember you saying that and i was kind of like well if they didn't let's just play it like they didn't play it like they did yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? and half the time you're like wow that was a slow stock waste of time but um yeah. but they were but they were there and i think when we first saw them down there they were at like what 275 maybe yeah uh, somewhere in the 200s got set up really quick and um i don't know what if you want to give your perspective about how that all occurred but um, you can tell cause you were the shooter. I was, I was prone next to you behind a bush, but I had a little gap with my rifle that I was going to like, if you shot and for some reason a doe happened to not take off, I was going to try to take a shot if it was right. But yeah, yeah. you, you, you were on them and yeah, describe the shot. Well, yeah, again, uh, having jumped the story already, people, uh, going to hear that on the podcast but uh <laughs> yeah i think um you know felt relatively comfortable um and i i do like to breathe i mean my dad um you know he uh he did a lot of biathlon um and would uh wax skis for the biathletes and some of the world cup races and also did some stuff with the u.s anti-doping agency and um don't worry this tangent will come back <laughs> You know, I'm biathlon, um, really interesting sport where you're cross country skiing and you have, you're going crazy, you know, skiing at a high heart rate and, um, high max VO2 output, as they would say in the sports physiology world. And, um, you know, we would shoot BB guns growing up and he would kind of teach us how to breathe and, um, exhale and, uh, I don't know if that exactly was going through my mind, you know, even when I, anytime I take an animal with a rifle, but <laughs> just that concept of like getting your breathing under control and feeling calm and almost having that trigger in that, in that um, actual shot surprise you. And um, I try and do that every time. And I think that that's what they teach the biathletes when they come in from skiing 5k and they got to shoot those targets at, I think it's a hundred yards or something, but uh um, and everyone who's listening should probably watch biathlon. It's exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> but, um, felt similar. You're breathing hard because you see the buck out there and you 
you're trying to calm yourself down. And so thinking about what my dad would teach us when you're younger, shooting beer cans and soda cans with like BB guns up at the cabin and uh, just being real calm. And um, yeah, took the shot, felt good about it, aimed a, a little bit high, um, thinking he was at about 300 um, because they had moved a little bit from the last time we had gotten a range. And um, I think maybe they had moved a little bit further than I thought, but the shot was a little bit far back um, and a little low. And uh, you could tell when that uh, pronghorn buck had got hit um, that it wasn't uh, kind of in the, the vital zone. And they all started running, but you could tell he was hurt. Um, and obviously, when you think about taking that ethical shot, and then you see that animal is not going down within the first 20 seconds. Um, you kind of really worry. And so Ruben was kind of glassing, glassing him up, saw that the shot was a little far back. And um, this is where, you know, having good hunting friends really counts is where you think about the best scenario for trying to um, – ethically get that animal down as fast as possible and ethical kill. And, you know, Ruben said the draw to the left, I think, I, I don't, I, I don't even remember all the details cause so much is going through your head, but. Uh, so that, the, that pronghorn buck had run out from 300 to maybe six from where we shot. And he was on the top of a little tiny finger ridge of sage and he was just standing there. And you could you could see that he was hit back, and you could see he was like hunched up, um, and he and he just stopped. Like all the other antelope were in the next county by this point, and he was just sit, standing there. So, and there's a lot of country behind him, and it it turned to private probably within less than a mile, half a mile. It was private, so don't definitely don't want to push this thing. In a previous podcast, you can hear about how one of the antelope I hit looked like it might have been pretty hurt, and then got a jolt of adrenaline and ran off on three legs. Um, so there was a draw to the left and I don't know if you, you wanted to take it or I wanted you to take it, but the plan was for me to stay exactly where I was, where we shot from and just keep eyes on that animal. And you were going to do your best to not be seen and get within shooting range to take another follow-up shot. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, that's a, it was a classic example of some good teamwork. And, and again, it's not the result you ever hope for when you take that shot and make that decision. Um, but, you know, having, having you say, think you should go down this draw, I'll stay up here. And that way I could keep eyes on Ruben. And if that buck moved, he could, you know, flag left or flag right, you know, on maybe which direction he went, you know, um, just through my binos or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so I, I, I think that, you know, having somebody you can rely on to say, Hey, you know, I think you should go down here. I'll stay up here and so, sort of, sort of keep eyes on them. And I ran down that draw as fast as I could and ran as far as I could down to where I thought I was parallel with him kind of going down this drainage peaked up. There he was on the ridge. I had a bunch of tall sage kind of in my way. So I repositioned a couple times, but you could tell, I mean, he was hit back and, you know, I said earlier that it wasn't in the vitals or, you know, it wasn't where you 
shot placement you would want it to be. Um, however, I mean, I think he, he was going to pass away. I think it was, um, you know, back sort of in the, in the guts and giving, given it time, I think he would have been down, but, um, again, the ethical part comes back and you want to, um, you know, finish that animal off as quickly as possible. And so I finally got a clear lane, took the shot. Um, he went down and, um, Again, not the perfect scenario, but happy to have a successful harvest. And Reuben comes running down the ridge and nice buck and um, happy to have, uh, I, I love antelope uh, meat, absolutely. I mean, in my opinion, it's right up there with elk. Some people would disagree. <laughs> um, and I can attest to you, the buck tasted great. So, um, yeah. but it was, it was super, super happy for sure that the result worked out. Because like Ruben said, the private interface wasn't too far away. Um, if that buck had been hit, you know, high and dry, if you will, um, between the lungs and the spine. and Or if he was hit way back, if it was a really bad shot, um, you know, he could have just run forever. And it would have bothered you to the end of the day uh, or to your end of your days, I should say, about whether or not that buck lived or not. And um you know, we've all been there. So anyway, uh, looking back on it, I mean, it was just really was glad to have you there, Ruben, and, and sort of being a good team on that to make sure that that buck sort of stayed on that ridge and that we knew where he was. And um, yeah, even though I could confirm that he was right there when I got got down there. So. <clears throat> so you made a neck shot to finish him off. How what was your range when you took that shot for the follow up? Do you remember? Um, I think it was about 130 yards, maybe. Okay. Um, but my problem was there was all this high sage and he had taken a few steps, but then he had just stood there for a long time. Yeah. And I was on his neck, like so steady that, um, I was waiting for him to take a step forward from this sage. And, but I thought about it and I was, and I had ranged it. 130 yards and I was so steady and calm and I, and he just stood there for so long, seemingly so long. It's probably dead like, still too. Dead still. And I just said, you know what, rather than waiting, if he jolts again or has some weird rush of adrenaline, like you said, I just said, um, I'm going to take that shot and it just, it dropped him right there. Yeah. So um, it was probably a good decision, but yeah, the, yeah. the big tall sage in that country was kind of in the way. So, and um, speaking of the sage, it was interesting to me how you were walking up to the animal and I was running down the hill after you, you made the follow-up shot and walking up to the animal. And <laughs> I guess you had a better beat, it, beat on it than I did, but like, I thought I knew exactly where this thing would be. And I think I was like 20, 30 yards off. Like they, they can disappear in that stuff. And oh, which they, is why, which is why when you're glass in country, that looks like you can see everything. You can't like those, those pronghorn can hide in the smallest little dips. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, so I was like, where's the, where's the animal? And then you're like, oh, it's right over here. I'm like, oh, wow. I thought it was going to be over in this spot. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you can lose track when it's all uniform sort of habitat like that. And that sagebrush is high. It's, I feel like it's so easy to lose yeah. track of them. And especially when they bed down and that stuff. So, yeah. So at this point, the sun's getting a little higher. I think that's like three hours into shooting light. Alex starts to, uh, field dress his pronghorn and I'm 
I got my buck tag and a doe tag, so I'm going to take off and uh, reconvene in a couple hours. I think we had spotted cell service, so we could actually like text and get a hold of each other what was going on. I take off after that other bedded pronghorn that we saw earlier, and he was still there, even though we had shot over the next ridge. Anyways, long story short, I was putting a stock on this thing and ends up uh, busting out, and I didn't think that it would have busted out the way I approached, and two other hunters were very unhappy with me about 150 yards down the draw because they must have seen this buck too. And the way I approached, it was like, you know, a V with two draws. So I can never see them and they can never see me. And I'm pretty sure they're the ones who blew the stock because I was creeping up within 200 where I crest this hill and it blew out before I got to the top of the hill. And I think that they might've been trying to flag me down and it saw them. You know, and then they were flipping me off and really not happy. And I thought they kind of overreacted for hunting public land with a lot of other hunters on opening day. That's going to happen. If I would have seen them there, I wouldn't have gone in on that antelope. But like maybe maybe don't get so so bent out of shape if uh, somebody walks into your setup. But anyways, I, I came back to the other side. Alex still out there field dressing his his pronghorn. Start to wrap around the hill, maybe what, 400 yards from you, Alec? And I spot a huge group of pronghorn out in this next flat. I don't think he probably could have seen them because there's a little ridge. And uh, I see a hunter on those pronghorn. And I'm like, oh shit, this guy's about to shoot them. So I sat down, and sure enough, he fires a shot. They, they scatter, and there's a four pack of does running at me. And I'm sitting there and I just sat down on the side of this, you know, dirt, you know, little hill and they, they bounce up over the ridge. And, um, I'm going to let Alec tell his perspective because I think, <laughs> I think he heard the other hunters shoot. So he knew something was going on and he, he glassed up me on the other side and I was sitting there with my gun on my shoulder and he was like, Oh, what's going to happen? Yeah, this this was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But because um, <laughs> I'm there, you know, it's hot, it's getting hot, and there's a bunch of flies coming around, and I'm quartering that antelope out. And um, I just I heard the shot in the distance, and I assumed it wasn't Reuben because it sounded a way off. But I looked up there, and I had watched Reuben sort of as I was cutting up this antelope, crossing the slope. Um. And so I look up there and I see him right on the edge of where he would crest this little ridge. From my perspective, I'm down in the bottom, you know, and um, I just like, I was about to go back to cutting because I just saw him sitting there. But then I was like, it looks like he's got his rifle up. And so I get my binos out, which are on the ground at this point in my bibby. And I like look up. And uh, he's like full on shouldered, like tucked in rifle, you know, aiming. Um, and he's like looking down and I'm like, what the hell is he aiming at? You know, and I'm looking like way out and then I pan back toward him. And like, from my perspective, it looked like they were at 25 yards away from him. <laughs> I like, look, I like pan down from him and then I see this group of four does and they're like looking at me across the draw. They're in a line and without even looking back up to where Ruben is, is 
you know, got his gun shouldered. I'm looking at the antelope and the lead doe just hits the deck. (laughs) (laughs) Hits the ground, like falls down. And then the shot sound, of course, comes through. Like I watch her fall and then like one full Mississippi later, um, the shot rings out. And he was only, yeah, probably 400 yards away. But it was that delayed, like I watched her just get, you know, crumpled on the ground and yeah. the shot through and I got to watch the whole thing. And it was basically by accident because I'm sweating like crazy and there's the flies are landing on the quarters. I just cut up and you're in the beating sun and the open sage and there's no shade. Um, but it was the coolest sequence I've ever seen because I got to see Ruben aiming hand over to the antelope, just watched her drop and, um, obviously knew she was not getting up and that that was a great uh, yeah so from my perspective (laughs) they came right over that ridge and uh at 60 yards not 25 but still really close um (laughs) seemed it for me just just they like had gotten out of their like sprint and they slowed down to a walk and they were at 60 yards and I waited till it almost looked like she was gonna stop but I had had my scope on her the whole time and she wasn't moving. She was just at like a normal walk at that point in the 60 yards. So I was like, do it. And yeah, hard shot. Just, I, I, my only problem was it shot a little bit forward because it kind of messed up one of the, um, one of the forward quarters because it went right through below the shoulder, you know, blew out the heart. But, uh, yeah, she was instantly pretty much dead. Made, made a little bit of a noise going down, but, uh, yeah. So, anyways. That's we're almost at noon at this point. So we get our animals quartered up and out of there. It's pretty hot. It's like 70 degrees. Um, we saw a couple more herds ping ponging around out there getting shot at, which sometimes you feel bad for them a little bit because you just got nowhere to go. Uh, but so we, uh, well, they would have somewhere to go if people didn't take 800 yard pot shots, but that happens. Um, so we quartered them up, hiked them out two miles, really sweating, get back to the truck, going to town, you know, get lunch and stuff. And well, I'll wrap up the next evening and morning. We just covered a lot of country and saw very few, uh, pronghorn and pretty much had no real plays on any, but we did for some reason, see like six bison on top of a ridge, which I don't know what they were doing there. Um, we actually thought there were silhouettes at first that someone like, you know, billboard like things yeah. up there. Cause they weren't moving forever. And then we, got about 500 yards close. And we're like, Oh, those things are a real, real bison. <laughs> they were alive. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Must have, must have been a grazing allotment that got them approved, but I never looked into that. Hopefully everybody enjoyed this week's episode of the Storied podcast. If you like our recipes or what beer we're drinking, follow us at storied podcast official. That is storied podcast official on Instagram. Next week is part two of this fun and exciting story that Ruben and Alex share. They explain how overlooked spots might lead to an opportunity of both of them punching their tags.